0: Nurses and Hypochondriacs, the podcast that brings nurse experts, patients, and hypochondriacs together to discuss hot topics in healthcare. And here is your host, Ercilia Pompilio. The drug crisis in America is only getting worse, but where did it all begin? In this episode of the Nurses and Hypochondriacs podcast, my very special guest, New York Times bestselling author, Sam Quinones, joins me to talk about both of his books, Dreamland, and The Least of Us, True Tales of America, and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. This is an episode you won't want to miss. It's definitely eye-opening and will give you a different perspective on the drug crisis in America and also the homeless issue that we're going through right now. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode was brought to you by Rogue Nurse Media and the Well-Written Nurse, empowering nurses and patients to tell their stories. Welcome to Nurses and Hypochondriacs, Sam Quinones.
1: It's great to be with you, Angelia. Thanks so much for the invitation.
0: Oh, thanks for coming on. I'm so excited to have you on. Um, I've been following you for quite a long time, since 2015 when I met you at the Zocalo Public Square uh, panel that they did on opioid addiction in Los Angeles. Right. Yeah.
1: Right. Uh huh. And you were that talking quite about a while ago. You- <laughs>
0: right, and you were talking about your first book, Dreamland, and I remember I hadn't heard of you. I just kind of was interested in this panel, and um, and I was working for a pharmaceutical company at the time too, so that piqued my interest even more. Uh, I wasn't working for Purdue, but
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, good.
0: <laughs> more about that later, but. <laughs> Yeah. And so I remember going to the panel and um, there were some physicians on the panel. I believe there was like a a police officer or Uh like someone from the LAPD, like a DA or something like that. Um, I, I, I don't quite remember, but I was the one who stood up and I was like, well, what about the nurses? You know, there's Uh no nurses on this panel, like where, you know, where are we in this drug crisis? So, uh, which nurses are so pivotal, I think absolutely in this with education and everything. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you started. I, I think your story is so fascinating on how it kind of, you went through these rabbit holes and all of a sudden you started writing about the drug crisis. In the world yeah I
1: mean it's it started really when I was at the LA Times but it exactly goes back a little bit farther than that I was I was a reporter in Mexico for 10 years and mostly what I focused on in Mexico was immigration. I spent a lot of time in small immigrant towns where people migrate to the United States And as I got as I get back to the LA Times in 2000 to LA I got a job at the LA Times in 2004 the drug war in Mexico begins to kick off in very, very scary ways that I'd never seen in the 10 years I was in Mexico. I traveled very, very freely all across the country. And now you could not. And I began to do work in L.A. about drug trafficking because the the, the editors wanted that. And, and, and I began to write about how drugs are trafficked once they cross the border and into the United States, how they get the rest of the country, you know, that kind of idea. And it came upon this idea that heroin now was surging. Heroin use was surging. I was like, what? why would that be? That's crazy, you know? Right. Uh, we we went through a heroin thing in the 70s. It wasn't that enough to show us that this was a d- dead-end drug. I didn't know anything about the opioid revolution and in, in pain management in American medicine, because I was living in Mexico and all that had happened. And so I was really kind of new to this. I really did. I did not know what Vicodin was or Oxycontin or any of this stuff. Didn't know what pain is the fifth vital sign, any of that kind of stuff, you know? It was all kind of like news to me. And I began to get into it and I found this story in the story that I wrote about in, in large part in the, uh, in the book Dreamland, my first book on the topic. It was all about this town in Mexico where everybody came to the United States uh, to sell heroin-like uh, pizza delivery. And that everybody's... was in
0: Nayarit, right?
1: In Nayarit, the, city, a town, yeah. the state of Nayarit, a little, little town called Jalisco, or they call it Jalisquillo. And that was a fascinating tale. And along the way, I realized that I was really only focused on the small story. The much, much bigger story, as I'm sure you're very aware, uh, being a nurse and all, is that is the 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 revolution in pain management that took place, insisting that we could now eradicate pain with using one tool, and that was the tool of uh, the, the opioid. Uh, painkillers. Initially, the first the first few folks who suggested a, a more liberal use of this, I don't think made these claims for it, but eventually it just kind of became this idea that we could eradicate all American pain with one with one uh tool and 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 those pills began to be prescribed aggressively for the next 15, 20 years. We're still really seeing it, I think. And um, and creating a lot of addicts and creating then a lot of people who switched transitioned to black to, to heroin because of course heroin's an opioid just like those pills and so that's really what got me into it all and uh but I, I mean it was really my connection to Mexico that allowed me to see the story and see that that uh, I'll write about these guys who were really the first ones the guys from this little town in Nayarit were really the first ones, not the only heroin traffickers, but the first ones to see that what, the, the, the the enormous new heroin market that was going to be created by our aggressive, relentless coast to coast prescribing of opioid painkillers, and they were the first ones to figure out, and then not just figure it out, but but market to it.
0: That's what I found that was so interesting about this group. I don't know if you want to call them, are you calling them traffickers, cartels? They're all uh,
1: traffickers. They were not a all... cartel. It's a bunch of little little guys with, with a kind of a business model, and they each set up the business model. Yeah, uh, the traffickers.
0: Their business model is so genius. And didn't it really happen in the San Fernando Valley that was one of yes. their biggest, like, I don't know infrastructures or that's where they all all
1: landed first that town a lot of people from that town landed first in the Canoga Park area Van Nuys area places in in the San Fernando Valley but one of the things that allowed them to develop this business model was that they were not in the southeast and the eastern part east of LA Uh, southeast cities around the 710 and the five freeway uh, Commerce, Bell Gardens, Bell, uh, Southgate, Huntington Park, etc. All those towns are uh, Downy, those towns were dominated really by the Sinaloans, and nobody messes with the Sinaloans.
0: Right. Yeah. Nobody me- I know that for
1: sure. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> I have heard
0: so many stories growing up in Los Angeles, you know, about right. the Sinaloans and working with many people from Sinaloa. So yeah. it is very well known. They were about- very
1: and serious traffickers, and you didn't mess around with them and so but these guys were out in the san fernando valley where really the San presence is not the same as it is southeast of la and i thought i think that allowed them kind of more freedom of movement freedom of ability to the, the ability to kind of develop their and but then very quickly they saturated the area with other with all these families and kids began coming up or young men began coming up and and getting in the business and pretty soon it was saturated and they began to expand and they expanded to first of the west coast you know like i mean sorry the the west coast yeah uh portland vegas uh, right. various places like that and then just by bizarre happenstance one of them had moved his operation this little what they call stores you have a you have an operator. Negocios, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> right. You have an operator who's taking calls from addicts on the street, and then you dispatch yes. to several drivers who are driving around the the certain quadrants of the of the town, wherever you happen to be—Reno, Salt Lake, to Portland, whatever it happens to be—San Fernando Valley—with little balloons of black tar heroin, meeting addicts, giving them four or five balloons at a time, and then taking the money, and then that's their job. 7 a.m. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To 7 p.m. business hours, et cetera, et cetera. And at one point, one guy moves his business east of the Mississippi River for the first time into Columbus, Ohio, just as Columbus, Ohio is becoming kind of like the epicenter of the opioid uh, prescribing and opioid addiction problem in America. And it's there and then other towns nearby in West Virginia and Indiana, Tennessee, Kentucky, that they begin to see the The emergence of OxyContin as a very, very aggressively marketed thing, and they just happened to be there with this foolproof retail delivery system, right? And so, and they was so that's why they were so important to this story. There are many people who traffic black tar heroin. These guys were the just happened to be there at that moment, and at they the right saw time,
0: right time, right place.
1: Follow the pills. Follow the pills, and they knew to the particularly the first guy, he figured it out. And then everyone kind of imitated him basically just follow the pills. And sure enough, and soon, soon they're in North Carolina, South Carolina, they're in uh, uh, Indiana, they're in Tennessee, they're in Kentucky, et cetera, et cetera.
0: What I found so interesting um, about these people were like once, okay. So basically how it started is people were getting their pills and either they couldn't get their pills anymore. Their insurance would run out which I heard this um, from many ex-addicts, yes. uh, people who are in recovery, because this is how they got into deeper stuff is, yeah. okay, they started with pills. So they couldn't get their pills anymore for whatever reason. and all, Or they needed a higher hit because their opioids were no longer, they developed a tolerance to these right. opioids. so So now they were going to black tar heroin. So once they were buying from the these um guys, these traffickers, right. what I found so interesting was what, when people would go into the hospital to get into recovery, either they overdosed or whatever, these guys would be there to pick them up from the hospital, right? They would be there to give them free hits if they They, were, they were very it.
1: good about knowing when they needed to be there. They also would give people um dope when they got out of jail. Um, they, would, right. they would circulate their number around methadone clinics. Hey, if you're looking for dope, uh, call this number, that kind of thing. They, they had developed a system and yeah. trial and error by uh, of figuring out when and where to be that addict's, you know, new best friend in a sense. Yes.
0: Right? Yeah. And, and
1: this was very well known and, and uh, methadone clinics were the main thing, but right. yeah, they would, when they got to know the person well enough, it would be like, you know and they did get to know because they would be dealing with these people daily right the, the addicts and these dealers would be have daily contact because that's pretty much the way the business is you know and so they they would kind of like develop these weird relationships of friendship and yet yet exploitation and this kind of thing but it was you know it was it was kind of part of that that business and and what made it so um uh tenacious
0: yeah Yeah. I mean, we did an episode uh, about a couple of years ago called California Sober where Demi Lovato had, um, you know, Demi Lovato's story, how she uh, overdosed, but then she ended up going back to her um, dealer who had raped her to get more drugs, you know? (laughs) So that's just the kind of relationship that addicts, have with these dealers and it's kind of a codependent relationship yeah you know are you okay
1: I'm fine yeah thanks (laughs) can you breathe (laughs) right right
0: but um yeah so so it's so it's an interesting relationship I've spent um a lot of time with friends who are in recovery and they have told me absolutely crazy stories of their addiction. And um, like I told you, I had uh, Dr. Anna Lemke on the show uh, before. And in her book, she says that, and I think it was in your book too, how an addict is almost like a prophet of sorts. And you learn so much from them. I forget the specific words, it's from a philosopher. And I was just reading John Updike's books, um, the Rabbit Run series. Um, and I think rabbit redux, uh, the rabbit character, he, uh, he has a commune and the heroin addict that lives in the commune. Like he starts this kind of little cult. He's actually kind of like the cult leader. He's like the leader oh. of the group, which is so interesting. And they learn so much from this person, you know, um, but getting back to, um, the book uh dreamland it it, i mean i loved it was so eye-opening for me because when i was in nursing school back in 1997 we were taught or not in nursing school i actually started as a nurse uh with my first job but in nursing school before then like 95 96 we were taught that uh, pain is the fifth vital sign and you always have to it was so serious You know, and then when I had my first nursing job, I was working on a busy ortho neuro med search floor at Glendale Adventist. I, it was insanity. I mean, everybody was in pain. So it was medicating people every four hours plus giving antibiotics, you know, or every two hours or every four hours, whatever it was, you know, Um, but that was the biggest thing. Oh, you have to ask them about their pain. But then in your book, I was just like, what? Like, I I couldn't believe it, like where that all came from. And, uh, you know, and I watched the movie Dope Sick, but I think you do much more justice with the storytelling and how every I I think your your storytelling is much more rich than Dope Sick. I only watched the movie. I didn't want read the book. You know, Um, I, I feel yours has so many just interesting details that like really adds to the story like the whole traffickers and the cartels and yeah all of that it, and then also with the the fifth vital sign how it just came from like an opinion piece or a letter to the editor to from the editor one or... doctor who said yeah. oh yeah i don't think people could get addicted to well, you okay. know what, what that
1: letter actually said was correct he said People who are in hospital. Remember his data. He's basing this on hospital patient data. Right. And this data comes from the '60s and '70s, a time when people were, if you had, were given an opioid, you had to get three doctors to sign off on it. Right. Very, right. Triplicates. En- yes. Enormous uh, scrutiny. Right. right. And and so he said people given opioids in the hospital rarely get addicted. What they if had he gone on, it would have been, of course, under these circumstances, because he didn't imagine any other circumstances, it was always this way. And that's true. If you have very, very aggressive control of supply, if you are not also, by the way, sending people home with enormous bottles and promising them refills, whenever they want, then it's absolutely true that very, very few of those people will get get addicted. Now, that was a lot of that nuance got left out in the in the interpretation of that letter. It was a letter to the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine in early January of nineteen of uh, of nineteen eighty nine, and um, I think it was. My goodness, I'm trying to remember when it was now. Anyway, sorry, um, but but that that letter was then picked up, as was the headline. The headline: Addiction rare in patients treated with narcotics nothing to say about how how scarce was the amount of drugs given to them all that kind of stuff it was only just this bare bones headline and it was taken as and quoted no one actually read it because it was in a back issue of the new england journal of medicine why would you read it it's too you have this these pain specialists who are quoting it and what they left out was oh yeah but it's very difficult to get this stuff given to you in a hospital you're a never given it to take home with you, Right. there's no chance of you getting a refill of it. It's a very, 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 very controlled situation. Yes, addiction is very rare. When you control for supply, it's very rare that people get addicted. When you decide that all of those constraints are off, that's when you get what we had in in the United States, where almost everybody seems like every American household has a bottle of Vicodin or something in their medicine cabinet. That's a very different situation. He wasn't wrong. He was misinterpreted and misconstrued. And, and for their own reasons, drug companies used his, his su- conclusion to, to suggest that, that their products were non-addictive, which is not true.
0: Which brings us to this very infamous or famous family, the Sacklers, right. who were uh, the owners of Purdue Pharma correct? Yeah. And they were physicians as well, right?
1: Yeah, right. And
0: so they created um, OxyContin. Yes. And it was this revolutionary pain medicine that they were really pushing out as revolutionary with all their marketing.
1: That was the key to it. The marketing was the key. It, it had they simply uh, tried to market OxyContin, which is a time-released time-release opioid, so they said 12 hours, I think really it was only eight, but okay, whatever. Um, had they simply marketed that to post-surgical, end-of-life patients, et cetera, a very limited market, we'd probably be erecting statues in their honor. Right. Instead- they marketed it as if it's good for everything anything no addiction um uh addictive capacity for those uh, patients who are in pain and and you need to to prescribe early and, and often and and there's no such thing as too much if it's if if you if your patient is saying i think i have too much i, I can't handle this it's a sign that they need more And, you know, pseudo addiction, all the kind of stuff. So they do. And they, 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 they back that up with some very, very aggressive sales reps who got paid the highest bonuses, really, I think, still in the history of the um, drug, the pharmaceutical uh, industry. Higher
0: than Viagra,
1: right? Possibly, I I can't say, but I do know that they were very, very high, (laughs) notably high. Everybody was like damn, I've never heard of it. I've talked to other reps who have repped other companies. And they were like, nobody was making what the Purdue guys were making. They were just, and they were very aggressive. They were trained to be very, very aggressive for those bonuses and so on. And so it was really the marketing uh, of the uh, wide marketing, very aggressive, very relentless in the face of doctors constantly that was really what turned that, that pill, which could have been used. Responsibly, very easily into something that was a, a real problem. And also, I would say this: that they understood the basic idea behind behind um, opioids uh, as a business, which is not a, which is contrary to what people really think. It's which is that demand is creating the supply. No, this is about supply creating demand. The more you prescribe yeah. it, the more again it'll grow. It'll do the work for you. And every drug dealer kind of knows that intuitively too.
0: Exactly. I worked for AstraZeneca, um, in 2015. So 2014, 2015 to about 2016. So they, it was really interesting. So they hired a bunch of nurses. They never told us why they hired us. So they kept changing our job title, which was very interesting. First, they hired us as transition of care nurses, where they wanted to make sure that the patients were going home with this drug, right? As soon as they were discharged. So they wanted to make sure that their prescription was the drug that we were, you know, that they were selling. So I, it was an oral antiplatelet drug. So these people had to have a heart attack in order to take this drug, right? So, so then the hospitals didn't like those terms because they had transition of care specialists, you know, and, um, so then they changed our name to, uh, nurse educators. Okay. So then they didn't like that either because they had nurse educators in the hospital and it was conflicting. So then they changed our name again, I think, and I forget what it was towards the end, but go figure. Years after all of that, I found out that we were really nurse marketers.
1: Yeah, I think that you know? was what was going on in that whole time period. You had this revolution in sales of, of pharmaceuticals. And, and b- before that, and this began about 95, right about the time when these pills began to be really marketed heavily. And that was, was key to it all. Before that, the drug reps. Had largely been, well, first of all, they'd largely been men. And right. most communities they were f- former pharmacists or doctors. So they knew, plus they were of the community. They weren't leaving for a new route or a new territory. They were there. They were older guys, most of them. And right, they were right. not going to be moving. And they, and they
0: knew people. They knew everybody. They knew everybody they knew the doctors, right.
1: And they knew also they were they could speak credibly about these drugs. And then in the mid nineties, you begin to see a revolution that takes place over the next 10 years or so in which sales reps stop being ex-pharmacists, ex-doctors. They become first or second jobs out of, out of college. And the jobs were, uh, uh, and the and the majors that people were majoring in like marketing, they didn't know pharmacy anymore. They didn't know medicine. They didn't have that, that basic, nor did they have any real connection to the community because they were looking for their next promotion to be sent to another territory. And so you be, and the other thing, which was very important in all this is that they just began to high, it was like an arms race of sales reps, just huge numbers. So we went from 38,000 in 95 to 102,000 in 2001, two, three, right in there. It was just tripling almost of the sales force and very aggressive, all very good looking Yes. all without any idea really what they they didn't know what they were selling but they didn't know yep. how to they did know how to sell it and right. this was real and and so of course all these companies are seeing everybody else do this so everyone's hiring more and more and there's all these marketing things of how to sell my drug and, and mm-hmm. the opioid t- epidemic takes place in in midst of all that that's where doctors are like inundated and all these guys know the most important thing you can do. could to really gain the confidence and the trust of the doctor, but also the those, the 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 staff the on provider, the provider, yeah, is bring food.
0: Oh yeah. Oh yeah.
1: Food, lunch mostly, because you eat with the doctor, the staff eats your lunch and then you buy more than, than they're gonna eat because a lot of those staffers don't get paid a lot and they can take home food home to the family. You you know, all this, this is like time-honored stuff that they begin to figure out. Right And, and it's what it was, a, you can't really talk about the opioid epidemic and the prescribing without that, that yeah, part I
0: had a $10,000 a month food budget, 10 to 11,000. And I only had three hospitals cause I, I had six in my territory, but I couldn't go to majority of them. I was locked out of them. So I had like three. And so one in particular, which was Glendale Advantage where I used to work. I got called all the time and that was actually one of our biggest prescribers and, um, and several of their doctors would do the, um, The educational dinners, I forget what they're called. They're called a specific thing. But yeah, yeah, but the same thing for Purdue, they started to recruit these doctors and paying them huge amounts of money to promote the drug, to write the prescriptions. They would send them on vacations. All of that kind of stuff.
1: It's interesting because if you think about how we evolved, how our brains evolved, one of the things that we really, really prized the reason we survive for millions of years is community, right? We, yeah. we the, the guy who goes off on his own is killed. So we yeah. we we are descendant <laughs> okay. from all these people who know that the and how do you build community? Well, there are many right. ways, but one of them is eating together. Yes, right? food brings people together. It has for t- time immemorial, right? They knew this basic idea that bringing food. Um, makes you kind of an uh, object of of affection or something and, right. and they it also boosts it.
0: dopamine especially if you're coming at noon you know people right. people's gas tanks are low you know so if you're yeah. bringing them like cool stuff like I remember for me Glendale it was Rafi's place you know yeah, right. so <laughs> it was um, a large Armenian uh, community in the hospital. Right. Like our, a lot of the nurses were Armenian. So they loved Rafi's place, which is, was super expensive, you know, right. but I, I would pay like a thousand dollars for lunch, you know, to feed everybody on this one cardiac unit, you know, right. and that was just cool. You know, I was like, whatever you guys want, you know, so I would hire, I would order the most expensive food, you know, of course. And, and everybody it,
1: knows this in the industry and in the sales right. Force industry they all if they don't know it, they figured out real quick and it, and it was one town that i talked uh, where i talked to people this one clinic they had to have a rotation you got you got you were select you were allowed to bring lunch once every three weeks because there right. were so many so many
0: well i remember bringing lunch I, every day right. I remember when I um, started working in 2005 as a pediatric nurse practitioner, I mean, we would get lunch all the time and we had all of these, there was a a huge surge in all the vaccines coming out. So there were dinners every night, like too much, you know, and it was exhausting. That was a time. And then all of a sudden within two or three years, the feds started really cutting down. Yeah. I mean, I got books, I got coffee, I got anything I wanted. These I think reps they were understood. bringing to my office.
1: I think they understood the important idea, which is that if you come bringing anything, you could bring, you know, pr- sponge balls or, or yeah. pens or whatever, it doesn't really matter. So long as you are seen as bringing something kind of a gift. And of course, the most important thing was food. Yeah, around lunchtime, that's when most of the people are getting fed. And this one woman told me, she was a receptionist, the daughter of the of the doctor. She said, um, people re- figured out, all of them figured out that I really like this one kind of donut. And they would bring me the same donut every all day. All the time. You know? Yeah. And uh, it was just this Well, they idea. would
0: have lists. They would have lists. They knew who liked to talk about hockey. Okay. You know about hockey. You can get some really great hockey seats. Okay. You get the hockey guys. Or... Uh, you, right. you know how to talk about this, this, um, or you're the sexy nurse. I mean, or the, not the sexy nurse that one of our reps, she was blonde, real pretty skinny, you know, she was married, but this one creepy doctor always really liked her and he would bring her into a room by herself. So she called me one day cause the other rep couldn't go with her. And she's like, Hey, you have to come with me. And I did not get along with her you know but yeah. i was like you know what i will i found it really interesting i'm like hey i'm always up for a story you know and i was writing and i was like <laughs> i am open to this let's go good for you you know and anything the doctor for anything for a story right good reporter right Yeah. and the doctor as soon as he saw me you should have seen his eyes he was like gave me the dirtiest look ever
1: you know <laughs>
0: and it was hilarious you know, and, and he just was just very off and it was bizarre. I mean, some of the stuff,
1: you know, you couldn't really explain what happened in America with regard to this whole problem without what we're talking about right here. It's such an important way of, of convincing people that what they know is true is not true. You know, what they, what they learned in medical school, was yeah. that these drugs? Drugs needed to be used with great care, and right. and through the nineties, all of that just went out the window. And a large part of reason why there was many reasons. It wasn't just this, but the a huge amount of people entering the the business of sales reps and all the budget and the this all of the aggressive tactics and really the the folks getting back to your original question, the folks who really revolutionized pharmaceutical marketing in America were uh, the Sackler family. Uh, yeah. You know, so yeah, it was really there. Their, yeah. They were kind of the ones who come up with a lot of this stuff.
0: Because I remember reading your book and I was like, oh yeah, that well, that explains what was going on. Because I kept asking when I worked for Astra and yeah. we would go to like Vegas and there was these huge, like just how much money was being spent on marketing and just the stuff that they were doing. Like they even had a 30 piece orchestra concocting this stage show about this man having a heart attack and his name was Joe and I literally got triggered because my dad is named Joe and I was like, I got to leave, you know and I got in trouble for leaving. My um, my manager was following me out. He's like, what's wrong with you? You got to get back in there. I'm like, I'm freaking having a panic attack. What the hell is this? Why are we watching a stage show about a man having a heart attack? That makes
1: (laughs) no no, the no. thing about it is that all of that is is in the past, too. It's very very interesting. You know, continuing medical <laughs> education is, is done online, so they don't have this tendency to send you to Phoenix or to Hawaii or Florida, someplace like that. And the, uh, most hospitals don't allow you to just... P- Troll the floors. Yeah, they really and they nobody anymore. is bringing gifts. You cannot bring any gifts. And right. I think it's a much healthier way. But it was really during during the days you're describing. It always seemed to me as kind of like the wild west of drug sales.
0: Oh, it was. Well, they they even would teach us. Like I learned some sneaky tricks on how to get in. You know, it's oh, like yeah. you had to wear certain scrubs and it was the Grey's Anatomy scrubs and they were the sexy scrubs at that time, you know, and I heard that from different reps, different nurses. So then even while well, I was learning tricks and kind of and I was doing storytelling at the time. So I was kind of developing my own stuff. So then my district manager started copying me like you started copying the way I was dressing the way it was really interesting. He had worked for Pfizer before selling Viagra. But, it, you know, it was just such a crazy time. Yeah. But um, the thing of it, how it evolved, I, I mean, it, it was just so crazy. And when I was reading your book, I was like, oh, well, this is what was going on. Because yeah. I kept asking, what is this? What are we doing? Why is there so much marketing? I don't understand. Where's the research? Where's the peer-reviewed research? Because that's what I was taught in school. Now, yeah, sure. I've been on two sides of this coin. So I've been in it and I've been... The provider. So I've been the provider, and I've been on the sales section, you yeah, know, sure. or the marketing section, I should say. So yeah. as a provider, I always thought these people. I I believed what they were saying. I believed they knew a lot about their drug. I believed that yeah. they were fully educated. And some of them became my friends. Some of these reps would become my friends. And they would tell me how rigorous their training was months and months. Like they would be gone for three months at a time, intensive training, but it's really mind control. It's brainwashing. You You know, know? what's
1: interesting about that is that it's a sad thing that happened because in an earlier era, those drug reps, those older guys who were all retired pharmacists and doctors, they were actually essential to... Doctors keeping up with the very, very fast changing nature of, of the drug world and all that. Yeah. And, and they could they they were frequently wonderful sources of information. They valued that relationship. So okay. they were not going to hard sell anybody. They were going to provide legitimate information as best they knew it. And you know, and now the doctors kind of with with that revolution that we're discussing the doctors lost that essential element now uh, there were some reps who probably abused the 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 privilege but reps didn't really want to you're in the town you're not leaving you want to make sure that that all your relationships with your doctors are really love, and you see them at the friday night football games and and at church and all that kind of thing so you want to maintain that credibility Uh, the doctors needed it too, because, you know, the the drug world is changing way too fast for them to keep up. You know, they need that, but now they don't have it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was a very, very interesting time. And like I said, I I was kind of privileged. I did it. I did it on purpose. I wanted to be on both sides because I would see these reps dressed in suits and they would have these amazing lives. Here I am seeing like 40, 50 patients in clinic exhausted. I was like, I want to have lunch and do whatever on my breaks, you know, (laughs) and so one day, I got the opportunity, I got a phone call, and I was like, I'm just gonna go for it, it was just a right space in my life, and it it just, you know, and I'm writing my own personal memoir with these quirky stories, which are very, very crazy, so, um, but very interesting and funny at the same time. What I really loved about your book as well, as we go into The Least of Us, I love The Least of Us. Thank you very much, I appreciate it. You know, because now we're getting into, okay, so there's heroin and all of a sudden we see fentanyl creeping in around 2015, 2017. Yeah, a little bit earlier, but yeah. Yeah. And so I had worked um, for Children's Hospital in the Department of Anesthesia at a place called Surgical Admitting. So I would clear as a nurse practitioner, all the kids going into surgery. Uh, right. before they went in and, and so i worked with the anesthesiologists right so yes they they would give fentanyl you give fentanyl in the icu but fentanyl is a hard core drug and yeah. it was invented by dr paul jansen who i and i wrote an article i wrote a blog for a client um and i when i was writing it you know i was like where is the ethics of these people? Like, let's say the Sacklers and let's say Dr. Paul Jansen of bringing these creations into Well, can the, I say something? Well, uh-huh. I, actually,
1: I actually think this, uh, I've had fentanyl in surgery and a heart uh-huh. attack surgery uh, six years ago. I actually think fentanyl is a magnificent drug and it has been a workhorse drug for a lot of years and used in surgery and using paramedics use it as well and it's been an enormous boon to mankind now i think paul jansen's problem came when he overestimated the amount of control of for the drug he always knew it was highly addictive yeah, he, yeah. he thought nobody's going to get addicted to this if the control in the operating room is really strict the right. problem is operating rooms can be strict or they can't be. It depends. Mm-hmm. The first people to get addicted to fentanyl are the anesthesiologists. The, exactly right, as you say, and and all of those folks, because the controls were not really what he imagined they they should be. Maybe it was just simply that he couldn't imagine uh, controls uh, uh, not being what they were in Belgium. That's possible, I suppose. But um, I actually think that the that that, you know. That was a, a remarkable drug. It allows for surgery that couldn't take place with simple morphine. It's much safer, I believe, when used technically, um, when when used um, than morphine is um, in, in the surgical setting. And I think it's just simply that it got discovered and, you know, there, there's a lot of, to the story. It's too it's so complicated to talk about right, all of this, right. now, but, but it, you know, the Mexican trafficking world bench, eventually, as they tell in the book, figure out from this one uh, uh, underground chemist there's this thing that they call at the time they call it uh, synthetic uh, heroina, synthetic synthetic heroin of course that's fentanyl and they they discover fentanyl and and they realize what they had already realized with methamphetamine which is that it is much better much more profitable far more profitable much less risk to make your own drugs rather than to grow your drug right And so the meth taught them that lesson. And here they come along midway about 2005, 2006 in the in the epi- the opioid epidemic when they're busy providing heroin to to the, all the folks who were switching to pills from pills to heroin, and they figure out, oh my God, there's this synthetic heroin just like meth, I mean we can make it with chemicals, we don't need a plant, we don't need right. to grow. there's no seasons, we don't need water or sunlight. And yep, all of that's true and that is when the light goes on, ding, in that one case that I wrote about in the book where it really begins to be, you know, where you you find people using the stuff and dying in droves and all of a yeah. sudden they knock, they knock down the le, the lim, the uh the the um the lab in Mexico and all those people stop dying. All the death toll stops. Wow. You know, so it's it's Again, I I, ha, I really have a feeling that fentanyl has been a, an enormously beneficial drug. Uh, now it's in the wrong hands, and it's a, it's an absolute national nightmare.
0: And that's what I had written in my blog. I was like, I wonder if, like, we had the doctor from Back to the Future, you know, if he yeah. went ahead and brought Paul <laughs> Jansen. To the present moment and we take him to downtown Los Angeles right. or to San Diego and we show him what his drug has done, like what would actually happen, you know, yeah. which, which comes to my next question with uh, which I loved that chapter of what is actually going on in downtown Los Angeles on how the majority yeah. of the people that are homeless are uh, ex-prisoners ex-cons uh, who don't have anywhere to go and so they're back into like these gangs and um, you know you wrote the story of the transgender person yeah who had come you know uh, which I was just like wow you know so I a lot of
1: this just has to do with the, the main issue went on the drug part uh, of my book, The Least of Us, which is about the idea that now we're in the synthetic era of drugs. They're not growing the plant. They're not growing drugs much. And and this is all because of what benefits traffickers had nothing to do with but what benefits users or what the market wants in some way. And and also the fact that you have the ability because they can get all these ingredients from China, mainly through right. the ports in Mexico two principal ports, but also Mexico City Airport, um, you can get these ingredients non-stop all year round in re- like container loads, okay? And what that means is that you can you'll now, you, you're, you're seeing what we're now seeing nationwide in the United States, which is fentanyl and methamphetamine nationwide. Right. All over the country, used to be that we'd have these cycles of stimulants, then depressants, then stimulants, then depressants. Now they're both together, massive supplies, enormously potent. And so what you're finding is once people land on the street, well, drug addiction is a major cause of homelessness, in my opinion. But yes. regardless of why you fall into homelessness, and there are many, many, many reasons, and it's all very individualized. And it, 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 it there's not one reason, of course, but there are many reasons. But once you're there, the supplies are so wow. vast and wow. so potent that it keep you homeless right it, yeah, it right. makes it more difficult to get out of the hole you're already you're already in and for some for some people for example methamphetamine is really viewed as a necessary adjunct to homelessness because it keeps yeah. you up prevents you from getting you know you can defend yourself against theft and rape and beatings and all the, all the rest so it's part and keeps your body revving so it's like warmer when it's cold outside that kind of thing to me, this is all part of a larger story about the shift away from plant-based drugs to um, to uh, synthetics down in down in down in Mexico, and and we're seeing it, and you're seeing it downtown LA, Skid Row, um, right. Venice Beach, uh, various 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 places, and uh, all across the country. Really, that's the amazing thing.
0: Right, and and it's just so profound. I mean, I. It's like, this is the thing that nobody thinks of when they think about homelessness. They just want to create a structure for someone, but they don't know like what the real root causes. And again, when I read your book, I was like, oh yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense. So,
1: right. Well, but- yeah, I think that the problem is that it affordable housing is a real issue. One of in my opinion, one of many that that we've woven into the homeless problem Um a uh, methamphetamine, I believe, too, that, that how potent it is coming out of Mexico right now, how prevalent, how cheap, unbelievably cheap, very wow. time, very often free on the streets. Wow. Is also so potent that it's I, I believe this is why it's causing um, these rapid onset symptoms of schizophrenia. So people are going mad. So the yeah. mental illness problem, the homeless problem are all wrapped up in what we're talking about here. And um, And it's hard for me to see how people would be in that state. Uh, would be given just simply a house and be able to actually function well enough to keep the house. And, you know, and frequently you find that that's really not what happens. It's
0: not what happens. Exactly. One of the things that's going on right now um, is there's a, there's a decrease of Adderall. uh, I think there's like a shortage of Adderall. And so that should be very, very interesting to see what happens because you, what I've heard from certain people Um, They went from using Adderall, their insurance, again, cut out. And so they went into using methamphetamines because it provided the same type of, um, you know, whatever they were getting from their Adderall, uh, they got from the methamphetamines, which then they went to a downward spiral with that. But
1: no, I think it's really a very difficult thing. And we're seeing the amazing thing, I think, too, is that we're seeing this all across the country. This is not just Skid Row L.A. This is all over the country. It's and here, in, never Palm seen well. it's here yeah, in, in Palm like Springs as well. It's here in Palm Springs
0: as well. And I've been doing um, some research um, with our police chief here because it's kind, he's kind of interesting. He came from Eureka and then he went to Santa Cruz and now he landed here. And so um, <laughs> I, wow, I started okay. to look at his background and he keeps saying the same thing. And I don't think the city council realized that, which I'm bringing up to their attention. He keeps pushing The homeless crisis, like, oh, well, it's mental illness. There's nothing we could do. And he says this time and time and time again, like in Eureka, in Santa Cruz, where they had huge, terrible homeless problems. And under his watch, a priest got terribly murdered by someone who they let out within 24 hours, yeah. like a drug addict who they brought in, who is having um, a psychotic episode yeah. and then they throw him out and he keeps just pushing the butt. And I was just like, there are so many things you could do. There are so many things other people did, you yeah. know, get together with mental health people, figure out a problem, kept just pushing it, pushing, it. And now he's here doing the same exact thing. like they he went you know it it was just ridiculous and it's causing costing the city one million dollars more because now they have to get a cleaning crew in to clean all these encampments that they put into the desert which are natural preservation sites
1: you know because there's
0: human waste and feces and stuff
1: of course anyway you know so
0: it's so interesting once you just start going down these rabbit holes what you find and what people are actually really doing about it But thank you so much for being on the show. What's next for you? Um, Are you working on a new book?
1: I'm trying to write about um, stories. uh, Probably my next story, I don't think it will be a book, is about uh, small communities, primarily in like, oh, Appalachian, places like that, Mm -hmm. where you find communities that are recovering from, in their case, the departure of the coal mines and the pill problem and all the opioid problem, you know. And, but what you're finding is little by little, these small problems, these small scale developments, these small scale, like the tiniest small businesses that employ one or two people, you're finding these little synergies coming together and together they're creating something bigger and bigger and bigger. And I love that. That's really one of the more um, important themes of the least of us, which was that we need to focus on the small steps You know, we got into this because we wanted magic answers to very big, complicated problems, like how to control pain, one pill for every single human being. And and it just always gets us into trouble when we want these magic solutions. There are no magic solutions. They're only daily showing up, daily work. And I'm finding this in certain towns where you can go there and you can see certain people have found each other. They're forming small businesses. Little by little by little, there's this progress. It's slow it's not saving the world it is not um uh probably going to make the evening news but i love that the the idea of people are just like doing it and not where and not expecting magic answers that always always seem to come accompanied by um consumer consequences <laughs> yeah so. consumer
0: or capitalism i should right. say yeah yeah you know well Awesome. Where can people find you and where can people buy your book? I'm going to, have. Oh, you can
1: find my books, uh, dreamland and the least of us on, on Amazon, of course, um, under my name or under the title. Um, I'm at, my website is samkinyonas.com. Uh, you can also see me on Facebook. I I'm trying to uh, do a lot with Instagram. My Instagram account is samkinyonas underscore author in which I try to publish, um, post, um, snippets of interviews uh talking about um oh fentanyl meth nursing all these kinds of different awesome. things police police perspective all this kind of stuff the the I did an interview with a guy who went down to visit a Mexican meth lab that kind of thing all 2 to 3 4 minutes long not very long I'm just kind of trying to see if that's another way of telling stories and we'll yeah. see so that's kind of what I'm doing as well
0: excellent thank you so much thanks for being on the show And until next time, thank you for listening to this episode of the Nurses and Hypochondriacs podcast. We'd love it if you gave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. We'd also love a monetary donation. You can go ahead and donate on Venmo at nurses-hypo links are at the show notes. If you'd like to take any of the well-written nurse writing and storytelling classes, those links are also at the end of the show notes. And we'd love it if you come and uh, learn the art of storytelling. Thanks again for listening till next time.